Hey, 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 hey. Welcome back to Jammies. How we all doing today? Uh, I'm doing pretty great, having myself a comfy little time. And even though I loathe recording these intros with every bubble running through my blood, um, it's been a good day, you know? Uh, unrelated to me, my life, my mental health, uh, but also related because this is a mental health podcast, I watched the Meg the Stallion episode of SNL this weekend and listen up I've always loved her but did you guys know she's also a mental health like warrior baddie uh she recently got her bachelor's in health administration and in addition to the tons of philanthropy work she already does she created a website called bad bitches have bad days that's full of mental health resources websites helplines you name it all sorts of good stuff uh in aid of the black community and it's the coolest thing i've ever seen on top of that she's also opened up recently about her own struggles with mental health a la her break from work and performing right now to take time for herself and her song anxiety which i've had on repeat and i highly recommend this song if you want something that's like a raw honest vulnerable and a hip-hop bop It sounds like I was hired to be some sort of white girl ad uh, influencer on this, but I just wanted to sing her praises for a minute, okay? Sue me. All right, anyway, back to the podcast. I have a really exciting guest on this episode. Uh, We met through a project we worked on back in the day, and she was awesome, Uh, both then and now. And I knew she would be. Anna Salinas is a comic in every sense of the word. She's a TV writer for Loot. She's a producer of her own short films and videos. An actor in those very videos she writes and produces. An improviser and the creator of her own viral comic, Bad Comics by Anna. I was a total geek chatting with her because I knew she'd have so much great advice for anyone hoping to make it in comedy. And I was right. She dished out a buttload of gold in this conversation. So... I'm going to let you get straight to it. Everybody, please enjoy my conversation with Anna Salinas. How are you doing today, really, Anna? Um, I'm okay. I just got off work, and work is over Zoom, so uh, it's like very convenient to just click on to work. I know I feel a little like an asshole when I complain about Zoom work because it's like it is very convenient. But um, I have gotten really into online shopping, I think, because it's so mindless that like any reading an article is like too consuming. Anything else you do is too consuming. But there are there is like an incentive for me, like hanging back a little bit because I'm a mid-level writer and I shouldn't be like talking too much. And I definitely have a like I want to constantly be talking if I'm like engaged. So I have to like disengage a little bit just so I'm not talking too much, which sounds stupid. And I'm sure like, you know, showrunners are always like, yeah, but any idea is a good idea. Don't worry about that stuff. But also like it does matter. And it's like kind of what keeps the room functional because if everyone's talking at the same time on Zoom, it's chaos. But anyway, so I've been online shopping more and more. And I used to be an online window shopper, which I have heard many people are where you like fill up your car. Yes, I do the same thing (laughs) and abandon them. And I still am. Boy, oh boy. I had like six carts going today Mm -hmm. and then bought like a pair of sweatpants only. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it's like 
But at what point is it a problem? Like at what point is it an addiction? I'm just like, this feels like it could have the potential to like, if I looked at the breakdown of how much I've spent on, I'm just like stupid, like even Amazon, I'm not proud of that, but I've, I'll be like, oh yeah, I do need trash bags. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazon makes it way too easy, but I love online window shopping because if you're still thinking about it, just go back to that cart, baby. I have like how many windows do I have open right now? Oh, this is, I only have three, uh, yeah. three windows, multiple tabs on each window um, yep. of carts. <laughs> but if yeah. I'm still thinking about it, then I buy it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And that is the thing where it's like, you can really make up your, like always in the store, I feel so stressed and pressed for time. Cause yeah, I swear they say more people are online shopping and everything, but you go to brick and mortar stores, you go to like the Zara in the uh, Americana or where it's uh, in the Galleria and it's like so freaking busy. Can you tell me right now who you're wearing? Yes, I'm wearing. Oh God, this is bad. So I'm wearing Zara sweatpants uh, that you can't really see, but uh, they I cut them because uh, they they were like such an awkward length where they were meant to be like ankle crop but on me they just cut like right above but they're like wide leg sweatpants so I just cut them and they look crazy they make <laughs> me look like such a like a mom but not in a good way like like a a frazzled mom and uh I'm wearing an Amazon tank top not proud of that. It doesn't. And it's like, it doesn't fit great. It like comes up too high in the armpits, but it's just like airy. Like when I'm home at zoom, like uh, working on zoom, first of all, bottoms are always going to be some form of sweatpant or pajama pant. Cause mm-hmm. like it's insane to no one sees it. Yeah. And the top just has to be like airy because without fail, towards the afternoon I just start sweating bullets I don't know if it's the sun coming in or whatever. I just get like so flustered I'm like hot so it's I need your witching hour worry. exactly exactly and then my like fuzzy little sweater I have here for when it is not hot all right a woman of function that works yeah. um yeah. you said you were working today you get done early work well yeah I mean that's the pro you work I mean, not everybody, but our show is 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. So it's pretty great hours. Um, Yeah. yeah. That's really nice. Do you think uh, a writer's room over Zoom is like more difficult than being in person? Or do you feel the same like energy bouncing around? I think it's harder. I think I think in person there's more space to talk. Yeah. Um. You know, there's the side conversations, but even pitching, I think it's a little more organic for everyone to like chime in. Whereas on Zoom, it's so black and white of like, Mm -hmm. you can't even like being like, oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah, that like chiming in like that takes up space and like cuts off. So it's this weird thing where you're constantly like monitoring yourself. I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, working on zoom, it's like, you're staring at your face. Like, am I, do I look like a bitch right now? Am I like smiling enough? Which, you know, is so shitty to say objectively, but then it's like, well, I don't want to seem like a bitch at work. So yeah, I better be smiling. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That sounds difficult. 
Yeah. But I guess the pro is you don't have to live um, in the place where the show is based. And we have two writers who don't live in L.A. Oh, wow. That is really uh, convenient yeah. for them. Then. Um, are you on Zoom that entire time from 10 to 3? We have an hour lunch. Oh, OK. Gotcha. From 12 to 1. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I want to start from the beginning, not really the beginning, but like your, your come up, your career path, et cetera. You're from Florida originally, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was obviously I'm assuming you came to LA to do film and TV writing mm-hmm. and just creation in general, but like, what was the first like light bulb in your mind that was like, Oh yeah, I should go to LA. So I, um, I had always wanted to be a famous actress, not just like an actress, a famous actress. Um, I think I, but I, I like didn't really pursue it in high school. I did speech and debate because we didn't have a theater club and I was very um, self-conscious about like, or insecure, I guess, like about my ability. I had done theater camp as a kid and was like very much not uh good you know like i was i never got the big parts i got the little parts i was definitely like oh but what if i'm not good enough but then i like manifested that because like i got to college and all the people in college and theater club had done a bunch of theater in high school and i was like well i did speech and debate which is not the same so i did a little college theater but not a lot um because i didn't get it in like i didn't I auditioned and didn't make a lot of play those in two plays, I think. Um, no, three. Um, <laughs> looking back, they were really corny. Like, <laughs> wow, the corniest place. Um, and then, so I was like, I know I want to get to LA to do that. Think I didn't even, I had always liked writing, but I didn't even connect that I could do comedy or tv writing or any of that so i thought maybe i would like be a journalist or something um so and we didn't have a film major at my college so i uh applied to teach for america kind of like on a whim in response to like the fear of not having a job the you know the 2008 recession had just hidden everything so i wind up getting placed as a art teacher for lower elementary school for LA. And so I was kind of my, my thinking had always been, if I get LA, I'll do it. If I don't, I won't do it. So I just wanted a job in LA and I had no film experience. So I get it, get the job and very soon realize I don't want to be a teacher, but in October of my first year of teaching, I, I, you know, I'm in LA and I'm like, oh, I'm finally going to take an acting class. And I had gone all this time without taking an acting class, like just in that way where it's like, I love this thing, but I am making no steps to do it. So I'm about to sign up for an acting class in Los Feliz down the street from my house because it was just a sign I saw. And then my roommate, um, who was working at um UTA at the time as an assistant was like oh I have this friend who just made a Herald team at UCB like maybe you should 
do that. I don't know. I've heard that's like a cool place to do stuff. And so really, truly on a whim, I sign up for UCB instead and had a loose understanding of UCB just because I'd listened to like Comedy Bang Bang and stuff um, and a little improv for humans. And um, so I sign up for a 101 class. Uh, it's this is 101 UCB 101 in like 2013. So it was, <laughs> it was a really different climate. I feel like a lot of white guys doing uh, blowjob jokes. But my teacher is this woman, Fran Gillespie, who was very encouraging, especially the women in her class. And she like was like, oh, Anna, you're Anna's great at characters. So she's going to start us off, which is bullshit. Like I was not good. But I thrive off of compliments. I thrive off of compliments and flattery. I'm not someone who's like driven by like rejection or tough love. I just need someone to be really nice to be and supportive. And she was. And that was enough that like, I was like, I love this. I love it so much. And I started doing this indie show called TNT, which was a two hour show every Tuesday at the clubhouse, the offshoot UCB theater. And just from that point on, totally got sucked into the world of improv and eventually sketch what, you know, was there every night. And it was through that experience that I, first of all, learned that I loved comedy, um, had not really considered that. Because I think in my mind, comedy was something I guess men did. Um, like our college improv team was just a bunch of white dudes. And I was like, that's that's not for me. Um, but just loved it and, um, you know, kept doing it. And then 10 years later or whatever it is, I think it's been I think it's been nine years since I started doing it technically. Um it, you know, I'm still doing it. UCB shut down and it's coming back. And I, every time, every time I think I'm out, they get me back in. But, um, you know, uh, I'm doing it. Like I'm still doing it. Um, my Latino improv team has like a little monthly show now as the theater opens back up and I'm back on Herald. Um, oh, that's so fun. I didn't realize you had such a strong base in improv. I had always assumed you were such a writer and sketch writer. I definitely. Well, I think I I improv has been the thing I've done the most because I think improv above all is an outlet and a hobby. And so improv really filled the itch of like, oh, I want to just like get out of my head and do something fun and be silly. And there was a time when I was drinking the used to be Kool-Aid that I was like, this is how I'm going to get jobs. This is how I'm going to get discovered and all that. And, and that is like not a real thing. It's totally fake. And I had to learn that the hard way and got cut from Harold at one point and was like totally devastated and all this stuff. But I learned in the process, you know, as I got work in the industry, I was like, oh, improv is just an outlet. And I, and once I, reframed it like that I actually got really back into it and was like this is fun and I'm only gonna approach this as fun whereas sketch when I started doing sketch um it was 
through with my um, comedy partner, Heather Higginbotham, um, because I was in this like little sketch group with these boys who were in my like sketch class or whatever. And I had written a sketch about period sinking and they like <laughs> did not like it. Like they were nice, but they were like, yeah, I don't really know about this one. And so I went to my friend Heather and I was like, would you want to perform this with me? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. I love it. In fact, let's shoot it. And so we shot it. And then that was our entry into like doing sketch together. And we ended up, um, you know, shooting a lot more sketches and writing, performing a lot more sketches. And through that, I ended up doing like, sorry, this is a lot of UCB talk, but ended up being on like a house team, being on a mod team for sketch. And there was a time when I was doing a lot of sketch writing and kind of felt like, oh, this is, I want to be on SNL or I want to write for SNL. This is totally what I want to do. I love sketch. I want a sketch show with my partner, Heather, like Broad City, but just a sketch show like, oh, this is everything. And a couple things happened that kind of took me out of it. One was um, we got a meeting, um, my partner and I, um, with a production company. And they were like, yeah, no one's really looking for a sketch show right now. Why don't you guys write a pilot together? And so we wrote a pilot together. And I think just like that process kind of got us thinking about our group as something more than a sketch duo. And at the same time, we had like continued to shoot stuff. So we kind of realized we were like, oh, both of us like also like filmmaking and writing and like maybe we're more than a sketch duo. Maybe we're just like a creative team. Um. And so we kind of formed like a little de facto production company instead. And it was like, okay, the goal isn't to get a sketch show on TV. The goal is actually to continue leveling up and just making weird films or whatever that are ultimately also comedic, but, you know, just whatever that looks like. And then the other side of it was um, I got into my first narrative TV room, which was, I don't know if it was my first, but my first union narrative TV show, which was the show Flatbush Misdemeanors. And it's technically a comedy, but it's so grounded and like just very character driven. Um, and it was a very small room, a room with like, I think five people or something. So I had all this opportunity to talk because it was a smaller room and to like get invested and excited. And there was that thing, um, which I think has happened to me now a couple of times where it's like, I'm brought on to, to like kind of write for one of the characters or that's like the initial idea. And then it goes, whatever, but that gives you a sense of ownership a little bit over one of the characters stories in an exciting way where you get like a little more invested. And I wrote on this show and I just fell in love with, narrative writing and kind of realized through that, like as much as I love sketch, um, I think you have to really love sketch writing, um, in itself to like stick with it. 
Like, and, and a lot of sketch writing is just pitching jokes and sort of following that structure. And yes, of course, there's like great sketches that just like blow out of all that out of the park. But it's like my favorite sketches, I feel like, are the ones that like extend the bounds of like what a sketch is or like get really dramatic and whatever or like play with the genre. And at a certain point, it was kind of like, yeah, I I just like sketches that feel narrative. Um, even the last sketch show, the la- last live sketch show I did with my partner, Heather, was a narrative sketch show where it was like basically a, um, a play, a comedic play. So, yeah, I feel like that was a really long winded answer, <laughs> but I think sketch just feels like the job one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like if you're doing it, it's like. I'm like, I know there's people who do it for the love of the game, but it's like it has a little more of that connection to work. Okay. So people in New York, they love to say New York or LA people are fake. Um, yeah. And I know a lot of times uh, people have difficulty making a community for themselves in the way that you have with UCB out there. Um, I personally, like I said, I've only been to LA once, but you were, you and all of the writers and a lot of people who worked on that show were an enormous part of me loving LA because of how much fun we had. I mean, I didn't do anything really. I was like an assistant, but um, just, it was such a cool project. I think being surrounded by a lot of people from UCB ha- and myself having been from UCB, it was so fun. Yeah. Can you tell me about the struggles though. And uh, the struggles of meeting people and making that community in LA for you. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one thing that has been hard is comparing myself to other people. And as great as UCB is, it's definitely on the one hand, like a kind of competitive atmosphere, which might change now that it's coming back. We'll see. There's new (laughs) artistic directors. I'm excited about that. Um, But I definitely, when I first started out, you know, I had just quit teaching. I, um, I had these like teacher friends and you know even though I had started doing UCB and maybe had like you know my fellow like 101 friends it was a lot of people very new to the the industry and I had a very strong feeling of like I am not connected I don't know anyone who can really do anything for me I'm never going to succeed because of that Um, and there are so many people in LA who like who and I'm I I mean I'm sure this is true in New York, but you look at their success from the outside and go, wow, you just like it just worked immediately for you. And I do think many times that's a mirage. And the truth is there's a lot of work behind the scenes. But um, you know, it's also luck and it's also timing and connections do matter. Nepotism is real. Um, and I early on, I think I was very impatient and very bitter and jealous, you know, in my lower moments. Um, Because obviously the higher moments are what keep you going where you're like, this is amazing. Sky is the limit. My dreams will all come true. Um, And they were definitely evolving dreams. Um, But, um, you know, I had this roommate who I was teaching with and we both quit teaching around the same time. And she was from LA. Her dad was a TV writer 
And as soon as she quit teaching, her dad set her up um, with someone he knew who was a director, like a big TV director. Um, And she became his assistant. And not long after that, and it was a very cushy assistant job, whereas, you know, I have yet to have a cushy assistant job. I didn't job. know they existed. <laughs> I know, right? Where it was kind of like, she didn't even work that much. She didn't like, she just had to get his coffee, but then kind of got to shadow him. Mm. And I'm I'm glorifying it. I'm sure there were bad parts of it. But not long after that, she got signed by her dad's agents or agency at least and um, hired on his show, I think as the writer's assistant and eventually as a writer. Um, she got like an open writing assignment to adapt a book. And I was just looking at her career like, well, I'm never going to make it because she was like, this was, you know, my first year out of teaching. This is what she was doing. She was like meeting with John Legend's production company and like having these generals meeting with Lena Dunham's production company. And I was just like, (laughs) I, I, what am I even doing? Like, this is, I was so negative about myself. And meanwhile, I was working as an assistant at ICM in the reality TV department. Like this was a job I had gotten because of my own connection to be sure. Um, it was my high school, one of my high school friends, sister was out here. Um, and was a young TV writer who was repped by a young agent at ICM, which was just enough. It's like, you just have to know someone repped to like pass on your application to be an assistant. Um, that was just enough that I got through that first round um, and then aced the interview because uh, no one wanted to work for my boss, which I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm, I must be great because I got this job, with no TV experience. And then I found out that like, because he was a yeller. Uh, no one wanted to work for him and worked in reality TV, which was not very sought after. Um, so I was doing that and just like grinding so hard at what felt like the bottom tier of all this and felt so far away from things like general meetings and pitching and getting staffed and even getting a support staff job um, that I grew very resentful. And I had this huge lesson I know this isn't exactly the question you asked, but it is something I think about a lot when I think about community. I had this huge lesson where, um, you know, I was hanging out with my roommate and one day she was like, I'm applying to law school. And I was like, what? You're a TV writer. You have writer health insurance. Like what is going on? And she told me she had felt stuck. She had felt like um, this wasn't really her passion. She had always wanted to go into like, you know, human rights law or something like that. And because, you know, we had started out in Teach for America. I just was there because I wanted a job in LA. And I think for her, it meant something else. And so she applied to law school. She got in. And to my great shock, she quit her job as a TV writer and went to law school. And she is now a lawyer in New York working for the DA or the public def- she's working for a public she's a public defender that's the one she's a public defender wow. she loves it i mean she's working like crazy and i'm sure like they will they it sounds like it's a burnout kind of job but like they burn you out but the whole thing really showed me like this isn't about who you know 
And sure, it can help, but you have to really want this, 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 you know, work, and you have to really find your own path because persistence is a superpower. And, you know, connections doesn't have to mean, oh, yeah, this person's dad is this or mom is that. It can simply mean staying around long enough that you get to know people and that your friends rise up and everything. And, you know, funny enough, I think it was like two, three years after that, maybe that, um, you know, she had finished, she was finishing law school and, um, I was hanging out with her. And by that point, I realized like, I had kind of gotten to the point that she was at when she left, where it was like I was repped and staffed and had gone on generals and had pitched and and you know, it was like, oh yeah, this is not unattainable. This is just like part of the journey. And had I hit those milestones when I was 24, I don't think I I would have been, you know, maybe this is me coping with my timeline, but I think I wouldn't have been ready. And, and my writing wasn't even very good at that point. Like I, when I finally started getting those opportunities, I think I was a stronger writer. Um, and I, early on, I think, I think I was under this impression that it was all about opportunities and all about just like getting in the room and getting cast in something and like getting staffed on something. When in reality, that time ended up being about craft and community. Mm -hmm. It ended up being about becoming a better writer, becoming a better comedian, learning my voice in a really strong way, which it's not like I'm like the best writer in the world. But you know what I mean? Like being able to be like, oh, this is the kinds of story I write, Mm -hmm. Um, which ultimately, you know, more cynically means knowing how to like sell yourself, but also just being like, what do I want to write? Like I, I get to choose that. I don't have to just take every opportunity. You know, that was something I had to learn. I don't think anyone has to just take every opportunity in this business. It's like, there is um, a benefit to finally getting to that point where you say, Oh, if my end goal is here, if I want to write on, you know, like, streaming dramedies, then I need to start making choices that lead there, even when they're scary, even when it means turning something down, Um, which can happen at every level. But it definitely, you know, there's a benefit to taking all the opportunities when you're young, when you're not young, but like earlier in your career. And I think on the other hand, community, like I spent those eight years or whatever, meeting people and like now I can make a short film and know an art director to hit up and a you know um a great sound per- like just having those resources um which I don't know it's just it's like it has given me so many amazing tools and like it's not like short films now are the job but like making short films, it turned out was like a thing I really liked doing and is something now I value as like part of the the pie um, that I always want to have the ability to do or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
or I mean, for now we'll see, but I think, yeah, I think that was such a huge lesson. And now I, you know, every now and then I'll meet with people, which is a weird thing. I feel like I'm still like so green and stuff. Um, cause I was definitely, I, I was someone who like applied for every fellowship and every grant and this and that, and was in that mindset. And so now to be a little bit further along, not like crazy far along, but a little further along the like, you know, I'm not eligible for the fellowships or whatever. Um, it is a weird feeling to meet with people earlier in their career who have that same impatience that I did and are like, I just want to get repped. Like just, okay, I just need to get repped. Um, and it, you know, the thing I always say is like, just like work on your craft. Cause I do think the opportunities will come if you keep working that craft and honing it. Um, you know, obviously there's like a bit of getting better at like networking and publicity helps, but like, I do think good work speaks for itself. Mm. Um, and maybe I'm a little Pollyanna-ish and like naive to say that, but good work doesn't have to mean like critically proclaimed work. I think it just means knowing what you do and like finding an audience. I think an audience will naturally flock to something that is, you know, authentic and earnest and honed. How do you feel like, how do you feel like you did find your voice through your work? Do you feel like there were some projects you made that were steering towards what you thought people wanted to see? Um, yeah, sure. And like, did, um, yeah. How did you end up coming? Well, to I that? think on the writing side, I'm sure there are those people who just like magically poop out a script and it's so good. And their first script they ever wrote was so good, but I'm someone who had to write like a lot of scripts to get to scripts that were less terrible. You know what I mean? I had to write a lot of shit out. Um, and that meant, uh, you know, writing scripts that I thought were what like a sitcom should be, where it was like, you know, like about, uh, I don't, like I was imitating sitcoms that were not even the kind of thing I necessarily like to watch. Um, and, Ultimately, what helped me with finding my voice as a writer was watching shows that felt exciting, um, which, you know, not to be cliche, but like Fleabag, when it first came out, that was a show where I suddenly was like, whoa, this is what a show can be. How cool. So I got excited and... um you know, I think I have an impulse in my writing to want to write things that feel a little magical <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, because I think ultimately that is what I'm most attracted to as a viewer. You know, I'll enjoy things that aren't that, but um, yeah, so I think, and I mean magical in like some different senses, like breaking the fourth wall or having a surreal component or you know, following a different narrative structure that is a little less um, predictable. And um, yeah, I think like I watched Maniac on Netflix when it came out and that was another show that made me go like, oh, whoa, and this is what TV can be. So I think that was part of it. But the other part of it, um, I think my comic 
really helped. And I honestly, I think just having a thing you do consistently that is like yours and where you get to just kind of do your own thing is so such a useful tool for learning because you get to fail without high stakes. Um, it's why I like kind of wish, I mean, the ship has sailed, I think for me, I, but I wish sometimes I had gotten more into standup, um, because I think standup is something that teaches you your voice in a way that improv and sketch don't do quite as easily. Um, and I, I think, I mean, it's not an accident that I think standup does lead to a lot of opportunities for people because it's such a great, uh, platform for your voice. But in my case, I think my comic helped me see that it was enough to just express that I was sad. (laughs) And like that could in and of itself be my voice. Um, You know, I think for a while, maybe I didn't trust that my voice could just be my inner monologue in some way. Um, And eventually I realized that those were the stories I like to tell stories where I related to the protagonist and it was someone going through some kind of internal journey, you know, about loneliness or sadness or feeling disconnected um, or feeling um, like they hadn't reached their potential and stuck. Um, and, you know, but I, th- that's just my approach. I think it's like I have friends who write multicams but that they find their voice in that, you know, um, I think, yeah, but just doing that for 10 years, like through 10 years, you you have so many opportunities to do bad, uh, comics, or I'm sure if you're a standup to do bad shows where stuff bombs, like, I think it's so important to fail and it's so hard. And man, I internalize that shit so much. And when something doesn't get like a lot of likes or whatever, it hurts so much. And yet failing is so great because um, it just it shows us it shows us the guardrails of like what we like or don't like. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's hard. I, I think there is a pressure with social media to like only show the wins. Yeah. And like, oh, just booked this pilot or whatever, like the deadline articles, baby's first deadline. If I hear someone (laughs) say that again, I will puke. Um, It haunts me that phrase, baby's first deadline. Um, But it's like the winds are so misleading and I kind of, I hate it. And I just, I wish people, and I feel that pressure. I mean, I'm not above it where I'm like, oh, got to post my wins so people know I'm working so that they'll invite me to do other things and give mm-hmm. me more work. <laughs> but it's that thing where it like, feels so good to see people say, oh, I just got rejected from this film festival. It really sucked. Or yeah, I didn't get this fellowship or I didn't get this job or I got fired. Oh, I wish people talked about that. Um, and I had an experience where I was developing my comic into a TV show and that was kind of early in my career. So I was very naive and didn't have a lot of guidance and, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. And the process lasted a long time. I put a lot of my heart into it, obviously, because I was like, this is my comic. It's my baby. It's about myself. Obviously, I have to like try really hard and, um, you know, did all this art for it and 
you know, practice pitched a million times and got all these notes. And in the end, it just kind of stalled out. Um, in part, cause I wasn't at the place in my career where I could have like done things to get it, you know, where it needed to go. And, um, and I think it made me really embarrassed, like, oh no, this is a thing people are rooting for. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do now. Like I didn't level up. I'm supposed to level up. Um, and so I stopped making my comic for a while for like a year and it was like a gradual, it got harder and harder and I didn't want to do it. And then finally I just stopped doing it. And, um, my therapist asked me about it and was like, what happened to your comic? Do you still do that anymore? And I was like, oh no, it's, it's fine. I like don't, but it's, it's fine. And then all of a sudden just started like word vomiting, like all my feelings of shame um, about the show stalling out. And in sort of talking that out, I went back to the comic and posted about it and posted about this show getting stalled out and how that had made me sad and made me stop doing the comic. And it was such a relief to be honest. And to be like, oh, this is why I haven't been making the comic. Um, and it had gotten hard. It, it felt hard to stick to this medium. You know, when I, in my mind and my imagination was thinking about the TV show, the big, broad version. But at the end of the day, the thing that I always was drawn to in my comic and that made me want to do it was having a place where I could make a piece of simple art that was autobiographical and not have to worry about anything else getting in the way it could immediately publish and there was a margin for like error there and a margin for it not being perfect because you're posting every day and there it doesn't have to be as precious it's not a writing sample where it's like nope this is the thing that you only get one shot and um and it felt so good to remember that that was why I did the comic and to remember that it didn't have to be a thing that got me a job or the job itself, that it could still just be a place where I expressed my feelings and who cares about the likes. And, and like, that was such a freeing feeling. Um, Cause you know, it's like, we put all this pressure on ourselves to hustle in every way. You know what I mean? Like for every single thing to be the hustle, like to be doing shows every night, to be constantly putting out contact on con uh, content on social media. Um, and yet I think that pressure can just be really emotionally draining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, I do want to talk a lot about bad comics because that's been like a huge part of uh, the stuff that you've made. But before I start that, um, I you had mentioned that you wrote a lot of scripts um, and wrote so many scripts that you just kept writing until they were good. Um, were you writing those alone? And or like, were, did you take a class first or... Was this something that you were like, I have other people holding me accountable because at least in my experience, it's so hard for me to like sit down and be like, okay, like I can sit and brainstorm, but then like 
forget a pro forget about that project <laughs> because I don't have anyone else like motivating me or being like, yeah, totally. this is a good idea, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, for me, it's classes. Like that is the structure that is most helpful to me. Um, so I started taking, I think I took like sketch writing, not even just UCB sketch writing. I took like a clubhouse, which the offshoot theater sketch writing class. Um, I took this other, like it was in someone's bedroom script writing class. Um, so it was writing scripts through that that were very bad. Um, but yeah, I would say even now outside of a class writing a script, the hardest part for me isn't is is um being done with the script. Like I think I have a really hard time being like, okay, I'm done. Um, because I start second guessing it, you know, halfway through or whatever, and I just go, this is bad. I knew this was a bad idea, and I'm a bad writer, and this is a bad idea. So I guess I just have to abandon this. Um now I went to screenwriting school. I went to UCLA um and got an MFA in screenwriting which I don't think at all is the best way to do it, but I was working at the time and also TA'd and it, uh, you know, it just made sense. And uh, I was working, you know, up until that point, I was working at ICM in reality TV. And I really felt like I was so far from, from screenwriting in that job, in my contacts. Um, those like writer's assistant jobs that were coming through were so... Um, coveted and I was like they went through so many people before they got to me that I felt like I just wanted to work on writing and I was working so much that I had no energy to work on the writing and I will say even at that point I had enough sense to be like okay my scripts are bad this is like a thing I'm not I, I no okay I really think no one is good at screenwriting at first. Like, I, I think it's like many things you, you do have to practice. There's so many aspects to it. There's no way you can like, just, I mean, unless you have some kind of crazy memory to watch a show and then be like, oh yeah, I know exactly how to yeah. do this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was not one of those people who was good at it immediately. And I, I, I think I saw that my writing wasn't great. And I think what helped is like, I, in college I had studied poetry. So I had watched my poems like get better <laughs> which it still feels so silly because poetry is even more like what the hell is a good poem but i had watched my poems get better and i think i was able to at least see that with screenwriting where it was like oh i'm not at the point where like my taste matches what i'm doing and that mm -hmm. feels like i just need to work on this so i went to uh ucla and um you know it's a great program. Um, but it is a little feature skewing. So I had to kind of go out of my way to also add on TV classes. Um, and I wrote these scripts in class and it helps so much to have those deadlines. But I think school taught me how to make my writing time more disciplined. Whereas I think before it was kind of like really hard to set aside time for writing. But I think, I think um, that during those two years, I gained that the habit, which is really important. I think 
finding whatever your routine is that allows you to have that habit is great. Um, for me, it was, okay, I need to write sort of around like 10 a.m. <laughs> That's my sweet spot. Go to a coffee shop. I can't be at home. I need to go to a coffee shop or something like that or library and just like pound out some pages. And every script I wrote in school, I now look at it and I'm like, this is trash. Even though in the moment you're like, this one, this one, ooh, this one. Um, but then I wrote a script right after graduating. Weirdly, it was like coming off the steam of graduating. I was unemployed at the time. I had like taught a summer class because I kind of got in um, with the Scandinavian Studies Department. That's where I TA'd and was able to like work um, with them. And college is kind of a scam because I was teaching a college summer class with like no Scandinavian Studies uh, expertise, but um, I was able to pay the bills that way. And I wrote this script that was the first script I'd ever written that was actually autobiographical. It was just about me being in my hometown, Sarasota, Florida, feeling stuck, which is a very cliche script that many comedians write, I think, where it's like, what if you had to move back home? But it was kind of surreal and it was kind of in the style of my comics and very self-effacing and definitely incorporated my real insecurities. And it was the first script I wrote that felt like my voice truly um, in that it, it felt real. And that script was my first quote unquote sample. It was like, I'm sure if I read it now, I'd be like, oh God, embarrassing. But it got me my manager who repped other people at UCB. And, you know, that was my, I'm repped with other people now, but it was sort of like my first manager where it was like, oh, I don't even know what this job is. And she got me some generals off of that sample. And because my sample sounded like my comic, I had this nice little almost business card in terms of being able to like go to the Instagram and be like, oh, this is like kind of what you do. Okay, cool. And um, that I think ever since then, the scripts I have written, even the ones I've abandoned, I now see I, like they come maybe from a place that feels more real um, and are less about like, well, I, like one of my scripts early on was like, I, it's going to be a script about a girl who grows fairy wings. Okay. Love it. Where it's like, no, no, no. There's like a feeling. There's a character. I have to start from that place. Um, and I do, I mean, you know, I think everyone's process is different, but for me, that is the thing that is very important in my work that I'm starting with like a kind of a feeling I want to express. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, and you went to UCLA at what point in your career? Like you were at the time already finished uh, classes at UCB and doing improv or was this like the beginning? This was kind of beginning. I had just finished a year at ICM and it was the worst year of my life. I think um, teaching as hard as it was like teaching kindergartners and all that. And it was long hours and really brutal. It was not nearly as soul crushing as working as an assistant in the reality TV department at ICM. So yeah, it was like I had a year of agency experience and I was taking UCB classes, which I kept doing when I went to UCLA. 
but I um, just had really no experience with screenwriting at that. I had like taken some sketch classes in that one like pilot class that was like not it was it was like a a, you know a backyard pilot class that was like a hundred dollars for five weeks or something like that um but I definitely went into my grad program I would say a bit green I would say a lot of the people in my program had written more scripts than I had um, and had a little leg up. Like, I think I wish I had a little more sense of screenwriting going in. I feel like I could have used those opportunities more. Um, but, you know, I know people who have done the professional program, which I think is also great. But I think ultimately it's like, it's not the class that was the most important. It was getting the handouts that were like, this is basic script structure, which you can get from, you know, a book even, but then just having those deadlines uh-huh. um, and notes along the way from someone who knew what they were doing a little bit. And even being in that workshop setting, um, which mirrors a writer's group. And I, after um, I left my program, I did writer's groups and I found those really helpful. Um and even still kind of do that off and on. Okay. Great, great advice. Um, okay. So now I want to talk about bad comics, uh, which is your comic you started. I mean, the first one I could find was back in like 2013. So you've yeah. been doing this for ages. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Uh, why and how did you start? Um, so I started doing my comic when I was in my first year as a teacher, because I was feeling um, like, you know, I was 23 at the time. And as bad as my year at ICM was, every year I discover a new low. But <laughs> um, up, you know, at this point, at 23 years old teaching, I was sort of the most depressed I had ever been. And I think I had experienced grief and feelings of sadness, but that was the first time I think I really experienced or was able to at least identify depression a little more clearly and my anxiety a little more clearly, although not that clearly because I was not in therapy and really was backwards in my thinking about therapy. But I was, I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I was really bad at, and still I am bad at like being vulnerable and telling people that I wasn't okay. And, um, but like, just, I had that like burning desire to just get it out and get out the fact that like, yeah, I was teaching kindergartners, but I was going home and like drinking wine and getting drunk by myself and going to bed. And I was crushingly lonely because I had just moved to a new city and all my teacher friends were like married and lived in Pasadena. And it was just like, I just felt so isolated and um, I was drawing these stick figures at school for the kids. Like, you know, I'm not like a trained artist. This is kindergarten art class. So I was like, this is a phase. This is what it looks like, whatever. And I had been someone who always doodled, but not with any technical precision, but just was like always a doodler. So 
I was, you know, drawing my little doodles for the kids, teaching them like how to make a face. And also the curriculum was very like, and I didn't write this curriculum, but it was really like artist centered. It was like, you're an artist. This isn't just art class. You're an artist. And so we're doing those like chants with the kids like, okay, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. And you start to kind of um, like uh, osmosis that a little bit. Um, where you start being like, yeah, I am an artist. Wait a minute. And I think kind of, I was unlearning some of my, um, schooling in some ways that was like, you're not an artist. Um, you're, you're but you're not an artist. Maybe you doodle. You're not an artist. You're like, a, whatever. I, you're just mediocre. Um, and so saying those things, but also very sad. And, um, one day I had broken up with my boyfriend. Um, he had broken up with me actually, technically. Um, and I just drew this little doodle about feeling relieved. I was sort of like, it was a little stick figure girl who gets sucked up into like a cloud of sadness and anxiety and insecurity and then comes out the other side. And it's like, whew, that was a relief. Um, and I posted it. It was just like on printer paper. And like, I think I got like five likes and maybe one person was like, this is cool. And it felt so great. It felt so good to to express that I had been sad. And it felt so good to like get some feedback, some positive feedbacks. Again, I thrive off of compliments. Um, but my ex-boyfriend, newly ex-boyfriend, called me and was like, oh, I can't believe you posted that. That was so mean. I'm so hurt. Like to say you're relieved that you're out of our relationship. He was like so mad. And that was kind of my first taste of what autobiographical art means, where it's like, yeah, you're going to get the relief of being honest about your life, but also you have to grapple with the fact that people are involved in this and might have opinions about it. And that would be something that continued because as I was figuring out my voice and making some comment comics about like sex and stuff and some that I'm look back and I'm like, why did I draw like a dick? as like, I didn't need to do that. <laughs> um, like a dick with eyes, but my mom <laughs> would call me and be like, you shouldn't do this. Your little cousins follow you. This is inappropriate. And that experience was actually really helpful because it forced me to think critically about what was important to me as an artist, as silly as that sounds, where it's like, is it important for me to express this adult theme? Yeah, it is. So I think they shouldn't follow me, maybe. Um, we're, and again, the stakes were so low, uh, you know, getting like 12 likes on a post or whatever. And, um, you know, I think uh, just that those little likes, those little compliments were enough to sort of buoy me into continuing to do it. It was the early days of Instagram. So there were like no other comics that I knew of on Instagram. So it was this feeling of like no competition, just like, this is just a thing I'm doing. I don't have to worry about like likes or like it just Instagram comics did not exist at that point. Um, and then Instagram changed the algorithm and all of a sudden they made it so that it was, you know, the app was no longer just about your friends. It was about discovering things and following people. And that benefited me weirdly um, as an Instagram webcomic. And people sort of found my page. 
And I started to get, I think I started to pop up on people's like pages more. And that got me followers. And I felt, you know, I think I felt kind of empowered to really take it seriously at that point and like really um, hone the style or whatever, which yeah, I'm sure people will look at it and be like, you honed the style with these stick figures, but I sure did. And um, through those eight, nine, 10 years, I went through some real lows. Um, and again, every time you go through a new low, you're like, well, this is the lowest I've ever been. <laughs> and one of those lows, I had sort of gotten to a point where my comic was a little closer to maybe my like voice. And I just was drawing comics to express how sad I was. And it was the only, truly the only place I was saying I was sad. And I think that depression in particular was actually when I um, left ICM. That was like the low that really stays in my mind where I like moved out of the house I was living in with my friends into a place by myself in the middle of LA. So I was like totally isolated, living alone for the first time, like crying all the time. And uh, I think the comic just became so much more important to me at that time. And it kind of helped me get through that time because I had people messaging me being like, hey, you're not alone. Like I'm feeling this too. Um, that was really where that came into play, where I had a lot of people reaching out being like, I feel this too. And that felt really great. And, um, you know, I got through that depression, whatever that cycle a little bit. And I think one thing that was cool was looking back and being like, oh, I'm not there anymore. And what I've learned about my, you know, all my emotions is that they will ebb and flow. And I'll, you know, I can't ever prevent that. I can just be more equipped when those ebbs and flows happen. And I think I have this friend who um, in therapy, her therapist told her to, to uh, knit this quilt or knit this blanket where when she's feeling really anxious because she struggles with anxiety and she's feeling really anxious to do red. When she's feeling a little better, yellow. And when she's feeling good, green. So every day she would knit a color on this blanket. And over time, it looked kind of like this um, graph or something where it was like, you know, periods of green, yellow, red. And what she noticed is, yes, the red always came back, but so did the green. The green always comes back. And I think my comic helped me see that as bad and sad as it ever is, there's always an end mm -hmm. to those yeah. feelings. And there's always the the clouds parting and that feeling of like, oh, I feel like myself again. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. When you're in it, it feels like something that's never going to end. You're like, well, this is just my new normal now. I guess this is totally who I am or this yeah. is, I don't know how I can't see how this is going to change, but that's something that I, I have a lot of these conversations with my brother because we both have, we're very highly anxious people, Yeah, but just being like, this is a temporary feeling. You're fine. It's going to be over. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I also love what you said. The lesson in learning about uh, autobiographical work is uh, yeah. learning. Like, is this important to me uh, to write about? And if so, like everybody else is going to have to, you know, either unfollow me, don't look, whatever. Um, and yeah. so it must have been really difficult in the earlier days of bad comics that uh, to post vulnerable feelings, was it? It was. And, you know, I think I really think that first comic was such a lesson because it was so clear the benefit of posting that first comic because it was the one that started it all. So I could always remind myself like, okay, even if people are uncomfortable, this is probably worth it. Me posting, it seems like there's always going to be a net positive, um, which was whatever. We tell ourselves myths. We tell ourselves things are more important than they are maybe, but that was what I told myself. And I think, um, I think that really helped. But I will say it did get to a point <laughs> you know, maybe year five or six or something where there would be times when it became less of a vulnerable act to say I was sad because it had kind of become a brand, <laughs> like my brand or whatever. And my mom would say things like, I know that's how you post your comic, but you don't actually feel that way, right? That's just like your comic. That's your thing. And I would tell her, yeah, that's just the comic. Don't worry, mom because I was still very afraid of that vulnerability. And I think, you know, I think it was easy to kind of cheat as time went on. And um, what really changed for me is when I actually started therapy and learned, um, you know, what vulnerability really meant and that it didn't always mean saying I was sad and that, you know, there were different shades to that. And I think depression became like weirdly zeitgeisty at a certain point where it's like, it, it's not that bold to be like, I have depression and anxiety. It's like pretty normalized, but there, but there are different ways that we can push ourselves to be vulnerable. I mean, me, especially because I really struggle with this and it's things like calling up a friend and saying, you know, Hey, something is really weighing on me that I want to talk to you about. Um, I just need to talk to a friend. And and there is a certain, you know, I, I was telling all these people in a way that in some ways became impersonal, like posting, I'm sad to a bunch of people versus I wasn't having these conversations with friends. Um, I wasn't talking to my mom about it. And I think that was that was a lesson I had to learn through therapy. Did you ever have the conversation with your mom or anyone who was truly concerned where you were like, okay, yeah, this is real. And was it as scary as you thought it would be? Oh, gosh. Yes and no. Um, I, I had a version of that conversation with my mom. Um, she, <laughs> this is like a little more specific, but she used to comment on my weight a lot. Um, she's like a very tiny Swede and I have a little more of my uh, Puerto Rican side body. And um, she's coming on my weight a lot. And I would just like 
be like, well, that's what moms do. It's like fine. And like, you know, I would crack jokes about it and be like, oh, my mom told me I got to go to the gym. Sorry. My mom bought me workout clothes for Christmas. Ah. And um, I gained some weight over COVID, early COVID, um, more weight than I'd ever gained and was truly self-conscious about it and truly um, very, very low about it. And my mom commented something like, well, you should go on a diet. You know, I'll help you diet. And I hadn't said I was going to diet. I hadn't said any of that. Um, and in that moment, I was just like, you know, I, I was trying to I was trying to do it my own way. Like I was trying to just be more active because I knew that if I was going to change anything, it had to come from within. And I just had to like feel good. It wasn't about like counting calories. And um, so my mom said that and I was like, you can't say that it makes me feel really sad. And, um, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not unhappy with my hips being big. I'm unhappy with like the way I'm leading my life right now. And she got defensive and then she ran away. <laughs> and then, uh, I was kind of mad and I was like a little peeved and I, um, talked to someone about it. And then like an hour later, she came back crying and knocked on the room where I was staying. And she was like, I'm really sorry that I said that. Oh, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I saw myself in her in that moment. I was like, this is why I'm so bad at vulnerability because like you are, um, yeah. and like you holding space for someone or like acknowledging that you've made someone feel bad. That's all like also vulnerability and really hard. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I did that. But at the same time, I feel like it's a daily struggle. Like, oh, man. But therapy has helped a lot. And I feel like I'm one of those people now who when people are like, yeah, I'm just feeling really lost. I'm like, but have you tried therapy? (laughs) I'm one of those obnoxious people. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's all so very relatable, especially especially when it comes to parents, because if you're anything like me, I always feel the need to protect my parents and protect their feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whether it's if I'm talking to a therapist who Mm -hmm. then like, it's really hard for me to talk about, uh, anything struggles with like growing up or my parents to a therapist, because I'm like, you don't know them. I don't want you to think this stuff that I'm saying about them. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want you to think they're bad people though. Yeah. 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 Um, or it's really, it's really, it feels so high stakes to have conversations like that with my parents because, uh, I also want them to know, like, I love you so much, you know, like you've yeah. given me everything, you know, yeah. but this can exist at the same time. Um, Definitely. I just want to get better. But then also what you're saying about, like, you're still practicing that is I've had to learn, uh, especially like recently in the past year or so that like, there's no arrival point. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's all, it's always going to be a thing. It's and, so ongoing. Yeah. yeah. And like these first instances, like that conversation with your mom, you'll look back on years from now and be like, oh, we've had maybe a couple more, maybe a lot more or maybe no more, but things looking back on that conversation, I think slash hope you will be like, oh, well, if that was the beginning, it didn't get any worse. It probably got better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That this is kind of ups and downs and imperfect, but I don't know, growth. I feel like my 20s were all about striving and like pushing and pushing this like 
big boulder up this hill and my 30s are like stepping away from the boulder and being like, oh, I don't have to push this boulder up the hill. I can just kind of like go, uh, you know, pick some flowers or something. I, this this boulder, it doesn't matter. And it's been nice to, you know, take that step away from the boulder of like the grind of my career. And oh, I just ah, so desperate, whatever. And um, not that I'm not like desperate in my own ways, but like to step back and be like, oh, yeah, but also I should like work on myself and like I should go on walks because walks make me happy. And I should like have real hobbies that are unconnected to work because that makes me happy and whole. Um, You know, that's that's all felt really nice. Yeah. Um, I want to talk just briefly a bit more about your grind. before getting back into mental health, I want to talk about your short films and sketches. Um, I mean, when I watch these, especially your short films, well, both of them really, because they both feel like short films and you call them on your website, comedy videos, which I like, because it's like, <laughs> you don't, you don't put them in a box and that's great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, watching them. I was just like, first of all, who's your videographer plug? Because they're beautiful. (laughs) Um, the music's amazing. Uh, I love, (laughs) you have a lot of like parodies of movies and that's really funny because it shows now it makes sense that you, you know, went to UCLA, you did screenwriting and all like, okay, I can see where that comes from. Um, but where did the bulk of like your education come from for production? Um, the school of hard knocks, you know, uh, just doing it. I wish I went to film school for filmmaking and not screenwriting. Um, I just didn't, I didn't know. Um, and so it really literally came from working with Heather, my comedy partner on our little sketches. Some of them early on were just on phones, um, working with whoever would shoot for us you know, which sometimes was like someone with their little DSLR and that was it, no rig. Um, Or sometimes like eventually we started working with um, our friend Colin, Colin Pierce, who was um, working on commercial production and was feeling, and he was mostly an editor, but like was also doing production and was feeling so creatively unfulfilled and like loved comedy. So it was like this nice collaboration where he was like, well, I want to do more fun stuff. And we were like, great, you can do all production and know all the things. So that's great. Um, So we learned a lot through him, I think. And he was kind of learning along the way too and trying things out, which was great. Like he did our parody or trailer parodies. Um, And that was in itself an educational tool because we were mirroring shots in these like very well-made movies like in phantom thread and stuff and that kind of helped teach us about framing and um and mixing and editing and we were doing it all ourselves obviously um so that forced us to learn and i think it's been good and bad because i do think now like in making short films i have such a diy attitude that i'm very like I don't need that job. I don't, I don't need that role. I don't need like a music licensor. I, I can make my own logo. I can make my own poster because I'm so used to doing it all myself. But, um, you know, on this last film I shot, like I had a grant, so I had a little more money and it was a 
I think I'm now learning the other side of things, which is like, okay, I'm, I don't need to do it all myself, but I need to learn how to scale up. (laughs) And like, you know, I worked, I've worked with my friends who made music. And this was the first time on this last film I did where I worked with like a composer and like, um, even I have had not been working with editors until recently where it was like, I was always like, Oh, I'm not a good editor, but this is just what it is. And this is how it's going to be. But I was able to find things in the edit because I was, you know, messing around myself and working with an editor has been kind of a different experience of like, I think I'm now learning how to find things while working with an editor. Um, And because I do think editing is definitely part of the writing process. But yeah, that is just doing. And I am still so self-conscious about my, um, you know, I think my camera skills, like my the camera side of directing, um, especially when you work with a new DP and you're like, oh, I don't want them to know that I don't know that much about camera and I'm still learning. But I, I think that what I tell myself is making short films and little videos is like the thing that's no stakes and it's just for me and like TV is its own thing. And, you know, I have my work for money and stuff, but my hope is that eventually those two things will start to intersect a little bit more. And, um, you know, want like, I can use my uh, momentum from my writing career and finally apply that on a film that is truly like just for me, you know, if if that makes sense. Because even the features and stuff I've written and stuff, there is an element of like the business to it. Um, But those short films, it's like, yeah, they can be fucking whatever. They can be weird. I can explore. Um, That's so fun. You got a grant for the last short film, but before you had a grant, how were you funding your short films and videos overall? Just all self-funded. And that's why it was like making those comedy videos was nice because you have a lot more leeway with comedy videos, like have things not look as perfect production wise and whatever. But yeah, it was all self-funded and Um, I did crowdfund a film before that grant, um, I, this film Foghorn that I did. Um, I was just going to say, I was like, you paid for Foghorn because that's like, it it was, I was like, this could not, I don't know, maybe, but I was like, this had to have cost money. (laughs) It cost money. It goes to show how DIY my approach was because I was like, every movie I was like, oh, this is as much as a movie could ever cost. Like, you know, oh, wow, we put in a thousand dollars each. Jesus Christ, that's so much money. And then with that one, I was like, I get how much, how much money could a short really cost? I guess six thousand. That feels like more than enough. So I fundraised six thousand dollars for this short film and it totally went over budget. I think I needed ultimately like nine thousand dollars and I was very broke at the time. So I like, uh, self funded that, scrapped together that money. Um, over time, I think like had to do it. The process takes a lot longer because I didn't have all the money up front. But um, then the grant I got was for nine thousand dollars, and again, it was the same thing where I was like nine thousand dollars. That's crazy. That's so much money. 
And again, I went over budget because it's like the more money I have, suddenly it's like, well, I have this, so I need this. And suddenly there's enough money for locations, but locations cost a lot. And I that one ended up being like $12,000. I was like, Jesus Christ. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like everyone always asks that question at like film festivals and stuff. And they're like, what did you do for funding? And it's like, I feel like the sad truth is um, self-funding is like really the only way unless you happen to get one of those fellowships or whatever those mm-hmm. grants but they how are long did so... it take you to i was gonna say how long did it take you to crowdfund i think i spent um a month crowdfunding that's kind of the window they recommend on seed and spark mm-hmm. and i think my um my comic really helped that a lot of followers from the comic um, donated, which made me feel so like, oh, wow, what a, this is amazing. I feel yeah. so grateful to have this resource. Um, but also it's like, I think the thing about crowdfunding is people come out of the woodwork that you would not expect as, and like donate, like people, I didn't even know that well donated like $200 and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, wow. You don't realize who is like really a lovely generous person until you're in that position. And I like seeing the people that were doing that. It wasn't like who my closest, not to say my closest friends didn't donate, but like, it would just be like, oh, wow. You're not, and not like super rich people just like, wow, you are someone who like donates lots of money to crowdfunding. That's like so amazing. I wish I were that good of a person. Um, and not in the role reverse of just taking the money, but (laughs) Um, I hated crowdfunding, I will say. I hope to never do it again in my life. It was so prickly and gross to be asking for money. And as grateful as I was, I felt guilty. I felt guilty that these people were just giving me money to like fuck off and make a fun film. Um, And it felt like pressure because it was like, oh, these people are giving me money. This movie has to be great. And Um, you know, I think it's good for some projects and I definitely think, you know, when you need to raise like $20,000, which is a lot more realistic for, you know, a normal budget short film, um, then it makes sense. Cause like, how else are you going to raise that? But, um, you know, I did it. I was always going to try it and I did it. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, your mental health, which we were talking about with your comics, what have been like some of your biggest struggles with mental health being in entertainment that you've overcome that you're, and some even that you're still trying to work through um, today, especially because in your comics, you do talk a lot, a lot about having anxiety and depression Um, to me, seeing all the work that you've done. I'm like, Oh my gosh, how, how she, doing this she you've had so much on your plate um well i think the thing i struggle with most is i had a lot of i mean i have a lot of anxiety and that was really hard as an assistant having a lot of anxiety and as as an assistant made me a bad assistant because i was really bad at giving my boss bad news because i would get so nervous and anxious and like you kind of have to be able to do that to get the job done Um, so that was a problem. It's, it has affected me a little less now as like a writer, cause it's being a staff writer or whatever, a 
mid-level writer on a show, you just don't have a lot of responsibility. (laughs) You just, it's fun. It's a great job. But I think what I struggle with more now is um, my like ability to handle rejection, Um, which is always a thing. But I think I thought, I think I had this illusion that if I just got to a certain point, if I just got repped by some great reps, if I just got great agents, if I just got um, staffed on a union show, if I just got to be a mid-level writer, then I wouldn't have to deal with people not believing in my ideas. Because, you know, when you're like uh, at the feeling like you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you start to convince yourself like, well, I I just have to believe in my ideas and fuck everyone else. And like, they're just going to see it when I get there. And I think I did that to a degree. Um, But still being, you know, at this place and being like, oh, there's still going to be people who like, don't really get what I'm trying to do. I think it's really hard to not take that on and second guess my ideas. And I mean, I'm dealing with that now where I have this feature that I'm working on that I got really excited about and, you know, started breaking and I was like, oh, this is great. And I love my agents actually. And I told them about it and they were like, okay, well, these are some of the issues we like see with this, foresee with this, which is a very valid thing for them as business people to say. Um, but I took that really hard and I was like, oh, well, what am I even doing? Should I be writing this? And it's tough because the truth is not like, oh, if you just write this script, it'll sell. If you just write this script, it'll get made. The industry is so much more mercur- mercurial than that. Like you, the only way to get through in my experience is to just care about what you write. Sometimes people will love it. You know, I had a sample that like opened a lot of doors for me. People always like loved it. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, I put a lot of pressure on myself with other scripts where I was like, well, if it doesn't have that response, then I'm not doing it right. But it's like, that's just not what every project is going to be. And, you know, even like, I I wish that feeling went away, but I think you look at like every successful filmmaker or whatever showrunner and every shot is not a home run. So it is, I think that's tough. That's tough to think about. Um, But I just got to, you know, keep doing my morning pages, keep doing my mantras, go to house of intuition, even though I don't fully believe in it, but just to like pretend that I do and (laughs) light my candle. Because that's just the game, I think. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. So just a couple of fun bits um, because I don't want to take too much more of your time, but this is, this has felt like a true masterclass. So thank you so much. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, An average masterclass. Like what's the average version of master? Yeah. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, Okay. So We'll go through these real quick, but what is your ideal fantasy mentally healthy day look like to you? And it can be something that's like just what you need right now in this moment or overall. Typically, I like to do them like, what do I need right now? You know, what do I want right now? Yeah. Um, Okay. Morning to night. 
morning to night. Well, this really speaks to uh, what I consider to be valuable and what I torture myself with, which is I would wake up in the morning early at like seven. I love waking up early. I'm not a morning person, so I never do it. But when I wake up early, I feel so powerful. Mm -hmm. I wake up early in the morning. The first thing I do is go for a run. Um, I'm very slow. I'm probably the slowest runner you've ever met. It's like great. Like I run as fast as people walk, but I love doing it. And I really love doing it in the morning. And I wish I woke up early more to do it because it's like the best. It's so peaceful. So I go for a run. Um, and then I come home, take a shower, and then I'd um take my laptop to a cute little coffee shop in my neighborhood. I'd walk there, um, get a little writing done. And then around like 2 p.m. after a really productive little burst of writing, I think I would go home. I'd um make a little food, I guess like a late lunch. Uh, maybe chill, watch an episode that I'd been saving. Like, oof, I love when you have like a juicy episode of something to watch. Like, mm. oh, here's my Game of Thrones. I haven't watched yet. Okay, watch my episode. And then go to a really nice uh, dinner in the neighborhood. I, lo- I love being at home. I hate leaving my neighborhood if it's not clear by this day. Um, and then I'd uh, walk to dinner, like at, you know, the little Italian place by my house. Meet a f- meet a friend or like two friends, drink wine, um, and then go to sleep by nine p.m. <laughs> I love going to bed early. It's crazy because I'm not a morning person, and you'd think that place like someone who goes to bed early would be a morning person. But I have I have like a bit of insomnia, so it's so hard for me to get to sleep that when I go to bed at nine, it feels like. I have so much time to fuck up before yes. I have to stress. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I have time to watch. Where you look at the clock and, and you're like, oh no, yes. it's 2 a.m. Yes. I love feeling relieved when I'm like, oh, I'm still awake and it's only 10 p.m. Oh, I'm <laughs> fine. That's such like that feeling alone is what lulls me to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of stuff in one day where you wake up at seven <laughs> and you go to bed at nine. <laughs> it's just like the perfect balance to me of like feeling productive and feeling and I had like a little bit of physical activity just helps me go to sleep at night yeah um but I'm so I don't do it enough so it's like my perfect days where I actually do it but also like a little bit of social interaction but not so much where it's like I don't want to like go out to a bunch of bars because then I know I'm gonna wake up hungover no it's just like a cute little dinner with some wine yeah bed by nine Cute. I love it. Uh, yeah. We're going to play this or that really fast. Uh, okay. Cheese edition. Great. Love cheese. You're a big cheese girl. Yeah, um, I sure am. And yeah, we're really going to decide if you're a real true cheese fan by these answers. Okay. So ready, set, go. Cheese on a okay. boat or cheese in bed? Cheese on a boat. A cheese plate at a fancy restaurant or cheese whiz at the fridge in your underwear? Fancy restaurant cheese plate. Cheetos or Cheez-Its? Cheetos. Garlic parm or truffle parm? Truffle parm. Velveeta or Kraft Mac? Kraft Mac. Queso or fondue? Queso. Palio or Baby Bell? Baby Bell. Burrata or mozzarella sticks for the table? Mozzarella sticks. Grilled cheese or bagel and cream cheese? Bagel and cream cheese. Cheesecake or cheese Danish? Cheesecake. 
Kraft mac and cheese ice cream or cheddar cheese fudge? Oh, my God. Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. <laughs> okay, that was it. Uh the plot twist is that there are no right answers and it was about the cheese we ate along the way instead. It was. Um, wow. What a fun <laughs> game. I, I am the Kraft not- mac and cheese ice yeah. cream is real. <gasps> Did you hear about that? N- no. And I think at first I was like, what? But then when I thought about it, I was like, is it delicious? Before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to bring awareness to, whether it's an organization that you'd like people to donate to or just anything? God, I don't do a lot of uh, donating. <laughs> and clearly. that's totally fine. There's a place in LA, if you're in LA, called the Glendale Psychology Center um, that does therapy scaled to your income, and it can be as low as $25 a session. Oh my God, that's lovely. See, you did have something up your sleeve. Yeah, yeah. Cause I know a lot of people, and I was the same way where it's like, I don't have money for therapy, and my Medi-Cal doesn't cover it, but um, there is there are options. Life saving. For yeah. some people. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Anna, thank you so, so, so much. This was so awesome sure. to talk this to you so again. Nice. I, feel, yeah. I feel like this was a therapy session, honestly. Really good. I'm glad you felt that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Talk some, you know, feelings out. It felt, yeah. felt nice. <laughs> really processed a lot. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thank you again. 